Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording from the vault in the Denver complex of the Colorado Department of Corrections. I'm Denise Presson, resident at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. I'm Andrew Draper, resident at Sterling Correctional Facility. I'm Ashley Hamilton, the founder and director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative. So when we started developing this episode, we couldn't really all agree on what exactly to call this idea that we wanted to talk about. Uh, Was it the hierarchy of crime? Was it the convict code? It's the unspoken moral code that exists in prisons. Or maybe even just a moral code. We got into this whole conversation about this idea of, well, that some some crimes are seen as more acceptable than others in prison. Yes, it's a microcosm of society. Um, But some people are treated a lot kinder and some people aren't. And it all depends on the crime that you have. Um, And... And what are the what what crimes? What what are these crimes? Like where do they line up yeah, on the hierarchy? Oh well, I mean, for the women, I'm sure it's a little bit different, and I know the women experience it differently than the men. Um, the in women, what way? In what way? Well, I think the men are more violent. I think they're like, let's go lock down and take care of this because I know that you're a sex offender or you're um, you're a rapist, and I'm going to let you know that you're weak in my eyes, and I'm going to develop that through a physical violence. Um, in the women, I think it's more of like. I'm going to hurt your feelings because I know how to get at you at an emotional level. So it's, uh, there's violence in the females, but I think it's also, it's more emotional. So it's bullying almost, I would say. So we're talking about how people handle it, but how do we, how do they know about it? First of all, two questions. What are the crimes that need to be quote handled or, you know, that they are on the, uh, the, the, on the the receiving end. the receiving end of the code or uh, the well, hierarchy, just like how we ostracize sex offenders in in public now, like they are ostracized. It's the same inside prison. Like if you're a sex offender or you've hurt a child, um, then you're on the bottom of the the food chain, so to say. I hate to say that, but it's true. And then if you're in there for. Uh, robbing somebody or killing somebody, you have way more respect for somebody the people do. Um, And how do people even know what other people's crimes Crimes are? are? The news. The news. I've watched the news and see, and then you are like, oh, she's going to have a hard time walking in here. Well, I know in like, in in the man's prison, um, people do their research on who the person is, right? So they actually... Especially because it's, you know, gang dominant. So in order to understand who this guy is, when he comes in here, they research him and see if he is who he says he is. Right. And then while they're digging up that dirt, then they they find out why you're in prison. Wait, so hold on. Two questions. First of all, A, how do they do this research? And B, why is that different from the women's facility? Why is that different from the women's (laughs) facility? (laughs) Uh, The way you looked at me was hilarious. I wish everybody could have seen that, the the sheer confusion. Um, (laughs) It's different in the women's um, because... From what I've experienced is you, it is through the news, it is through the media, and then it's like through county jail. And so somebody's been locked up in county jail waiting to come to prison. And then the county jail girl that knew the girl that's coming to prison in three or four more months, she is telling everybody what she knows about so-and-so. So it's word of mouth. Absolutely. But even, but nobody's taking the time to know so-and-so. They've never met so-and-so. They've all just assumed they know her story based upon maybe county jail girl or the media. Real or dangerous the, version. 
version of the telephone game. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. And don't, uh, don't try and get away from this question. How do they do this research? Oh, well. Um, Inmate.com. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I've heard yes. of such a place. <laughs> it, it is where all fake news is real news. And <laughs> <laughs> the timeline does not exist. But, um, but I mean, people, they call home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we we don't have the internet inside, um, so they call Which home. Which I think to, people might be surprised to know there's no internet right, inside. There's no correct. internet yeah. inside, and so they call home to you know people who have access to the interwebs, and then they give the people the names, and they Google these people, they search for these people, and they they locate them. But again, they've only found this out through through every other media source or every other source besides the actual individual. And I think that's why this is important for us to meet Sarah Berry today. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about let's talk about Sarah. Sarah Berry is the associate producer for Within. Um, she is our female incarcerated um, producer. We also have a male incarcerated producer who is working on um, Within as well, Michael Clifton, who you're going to hear from later in the season as well. But uh, Sarah, she was incredibly generous in being willing willing to tell us her story because she actually is um, very courageous. She's very courageous, and she also has been the recipient of being in this hierarchy and being on the low end. Uh, she came into crime. She came into prison with a crime that had to do with a child. Correct. Um, and she received some really extreme backlash. So she is 34 years old. She is a resident at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility. She served 12 years of a 48-year sentence, and um, she's been pretty busy. She is very busy still yeah. to this day. Let's talk a little bit about how she spends her time. Well, I also, I know she's a canine team member. She's a very... Um She's a master dog trainer on the canine program. She's also very integral inside the facility. She's taught seven habits for highly effective people. She was a parapro. I actually was in one of her classes. Um, she taught GED like she is a giver. And uh, before coming to prison, Sarah was a special education parapro in an elementary school. Um, and her um, some and her ultimate professional goal was to be an autism specialist. Something you may be surprised to learn about Sarah is that her whole world stops when she hears Louis Armstrong. So Sarah. Yes. Hi. Hi. So glad you're here. Yeah, me too. You know, as far as like the hierarchy of crime, I think of my own personal crime and then I think of like what happens inside prison. So if like I was to bring somebody into prison that's never been there, that has no idea how things go, depending on what your crime is, you are automatically judged. And sometimes that judgment comes off of media influence and sometimes it comes off of the fact that people only hear things because they maybe they were in county jail with you and they saw you go to court and they might have heard something you know but it's never it's always based off of assumption let's just start there like the convict code is usually based off of assumption it's the never going up to sarah berry and shaking her hand and being like hey nice to meet you so what are you in here for even though that's not usually how they conversate but it should i've heard that a lot though well i've heard people a lot of times asking what are you here for? Or how long are you here? A lot of times from what I have heard, a lot of it is, you know, how long is your sentence? How long are you here? And then from there, depending on what your sentence is, you know, I have a 48 year sentence. So even somebody who didn't know me, even now after it's been, you know, 12 years removed from 
most people's minds, somebody hears 48 years and they're like, God, what did you do? You know, and then that opens up conversations as well. I remember one time I was leading a group, uh, a class, and the first day went beautifully. It was a theater class. And we had a really great session. It was at a new prison, new facility. And um, I had done a whole application process for people to to join in the class and everything. So it had been like kind of a, a long process. People got in, we started the class. And then the second session, about a third of the women were gone. And I was like, okay, I don't think I'm that bad of a teacher. Like what, <laughs> what happened? And I checked in with um, one of the women in the group and I was like, what happened? Where did they go? And they said, after a little coaxing, me really asking, they said, some people feel there are too many sex offenders in this group. And I was like, what? Like they don't want to be in the group because there's too many yes. sex offenders in the group? That's real. I think just the the idea that why would you hold somebody's crime against them sort of thing. And I think that, um, and obviously we have the difference between men and women's facilities, but I think a lot of times with women, it's a matter of, I may be ashamed of what I have done in my life, or I'm not willing to take responsibility for why I'm in prison. So to prevent others from seeing that in me, I'm going to point out why you're here. I'm going to point the finger at you and get as many people behind me to point their fingers at you because then I can fade into the background and no one knows anything about me. There's the larger conversation around in society, our own moral code. Mm -hmm. um, there's an understanding of moral code in society outside of prison, right? right? And then it's sort of exacerbated, I think, in prison. It's sort of under a microscope. And then, so there's this, there's that. Um, which I think we should get into. Um, but then I also think there's this more interpersonal piece around if um, exactly what Sarah's saying, if I'm pointing the finger at you, if I'm being cruel to you, it's actually just a direct reflection of how that person really feels about themselves mm -hmm. and how that really, that person's inability to hold complexity, right? Um, because a big point of the reason why we wanted to have Sarah on today is um to get at this question of assumption mm -hmm. and to get at this, you know, that um, where does responsibility meet judgment, meet assumption, right? What is the mess and the, the unpacking of all of that? Um, and the reality is, is that those conversations take time. They take space. They take consciousness. They take a desire for um, healing. And not everyone is coming from that place, Right. So walk us through um, getting to prison and specifically, again, you know, um, you're coming into a woman's prison with a crime that has to do with a child. Correct. Um, that was a horrible time for me um, because not only not only am I trying to deal with the reality of my situation, um, not only am I not in a healthy frame of mind in how I view the world and how I view myself and how I view um, everything around me, um, 
how I view the justice system. Um, There's so many things. So I already had all of that. Um, But then coming into prison, um, everyone felt as if they lived in the same household as me based on how they treated me. Um, I could not walk anywhere without someone screaming and yelling, um, calling me a baby killer and um, you have no right to eat and coming up and, you know, throwing trays at me or knocking my tray out or throwing things on me or tripping me or I, the list goes on and on and on. It's just, I couldn't go anywhere without that kind of, um, perspective. And I would have people tell me things that, um, either, I don't know, because I didn't get to see a lot of the, the news media and, you know, the papers or anything like that. But I heard so many different stories as to what had actually happened that some things that I was like, what are you even talking about? Like they weren't even facts of the situation, much less, you know, it was like some completely random thing. Like you did this, this, and this. Well, no, (laughs) but there was nothing that like my word meant absolutely nothing at that point because I was what everyone else had created me to be. Um, And it was, um, it was something that affected, like we kind of, you know, we talked, it was interesting when we were all kind of talking earlier that it made me think of the difference between men and women's prisons that, um, the way that men and women almost deal with conflict, like that, Um, men deal with conflict more in either a, I don't want to say, I I feel like I would be wrong to say power. So correct me if I'm wrong in this, but it's either a, um, physical or status related way of dealing with things. Like men are not as emotional in their handlings of situations. I've seen some very emotional men. Well, not that there aren't. I think there's always exceptions to the rule. So I want to go to, you've been tripped, you've been bullied, you've been ostracized. It's been a rough, like how many years in the beginning? Oh God, at least a good, at least a good five years. Did you ever feel like just walloping somebody in the head? Just like, shut up, punk, boop. No, I never, I never wanted to hit anybody, but I, I definitely reached a point where I would confront people on situations verbally, verbally. Mm -hmm. I was never the, the physical side of things was I'm not, I'm not a fighter. I'm not that person. I don't handle things that way. Never will. (laughs) But I got into many, many situations at some point that, um, I know your friends, sort sort of friends. You're not besties with her, but I know. Can you talk about briefly about the relationship without mentioning her yet? Maybe we'll meet her. About one in particular that used to really get at you. Yeah. Like how was that? And talk about that a little bit. Um, do you know you know who I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, so that's it's actually kind of an interesting story because I went through so much. Um, especially within the first few months of being incarcerated that, um, I pretty much shut down. So there's a lot of things that I don't 
specifically remember. Like if you could say that this person, what did they do? I couldn't tell you this person did this, 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 and this to me because so many things came from so many different directions. This particular person was one of the biggest, um, instigators. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I was gone to another facility for several years and came back to this facility and um, didn't recognize her, didn't, and nor did I, um, I didn't walk around, uh, even people who treated me poorly, I didn't walk around being like, oh, fuck you, Mm -hmm. you know, for everything, because that's not the place that I was at. Um, How would you respond when people were, were mean or cruel? I would put my head down and I would try to walk away or hide. So, so this one woman who, Mm -hmm. um, she was being really cruel to you. Right. Why do you think that was? To be honest with you, I don't know. We never really specifically talked about why it was. I don't know if it was, um... I don't, to be honest, I don't even want to speak for, I don't even want to try to assume because I could give my own assumptions as to why women act that way in general. Um, I just don't want to specifically say why I think she did. Um, I think women, which kind of takes us back to what I had started before of the differences between how men and women handle things is that women are much more, um, emotionally attached to situations. And so the way that they deal with things are a lot more emotional. So to ostracize someone or to treat them a certain way or to degrade them um, is much more impactful in how to hurt someone than to just put your hands on them. Because physical um, abuse is not the same as mental and emotional abuse. That lasts so much longer and it affects so many other things. And so, um, so I think that women a lot of times get the, um, I don't want anyone to judge me or to look at me or to see what my past is or my faults or my shortcomings. So I will point out all of yours because you're an easy target because everything was out on the news or because so-and-so said this about this person. And if I can get as many people as I can to back me to point the finger at you, then nobody's going to see me. I didn't even recognize her. I didn't even realize who she was when I came back to this facility. And I interacted with her many times and treated her the same as I would treat anyone else. Um, And... Because I came to that, like, I know how horrible it is to be treated as poorly as I was. So I was never going to do that to someone else. And that is, she came to me one day and actually like, do you not remember? Like everything. And the more we kind of talk, like she didn't, she wouldn't even say specifics. We ended up talking through things and have now become friends. So someone who was one of the worst people to treat me horrible has now become that person that is a friend now. Because just going back to what I said before, that forgiveness opened the door for conversation. And she didn't know my past. She didn't know what really happened. And so when we sat down and actually talked about those things, she was like, oh my God, I wish I would have known that before. 
And I have seen that so much that I, the longer that I was in prison, the more people would, you know, the way you carry yourself, the way that you act, the way that you talk to people, the way that I see this and I see that, like it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what I always thought. It doesn't fit what I heard. And that then conversations would happen and would change and the dynamic changed to, well, maybe I shouldn't have been so quick to judge. Prison's a microcosm of society. Absolutely. And we, we grow, we grow to a place of understanding because we look and we see, and that's the, I guess that's almost what I'm trying to say is everybody should be deserve afford afforded the opportunity to, to be show, to be able to show like that is not who I am. That moment in my life, that moment in, in time is not who I am. And these are the reasons why. And I will continue to show you day after day after day after day and growth after growth and and accomplishment after accomplishment that that was just not who I am. And these are the reasons why. They're not excuses. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, we often use the word excuse. And I don't think anybody's trying to excuse anybody in the Department of Corrections for anything. not Um, at all. I think it's just the reason, good, bad, or indifferent. I think it's just the reason why. And where do we go from there? But there's got to be a way that even with crimes that occur, how do you help change that? How do you help? Um, where's the redemption factor in it? Or um, what is it that people need to to help each other out in that because you can't just like you said, like you can't you can't discard a crime that has happened or a victim that's involved or the pain and the heartache that has come across that. That should never be something that is minimized by any means. But what happens after? What do you do after? And beyond that, how do you prevent that from happening? After we interviewed Sarah, we talked more off the air about the woman she spoke about, the woman who bullied Sarah when she first got to prison and that she eventually became friends with. We wondered if she'd be willing to talk with us, too. We wanted to understand more about this idea of the hierarchy of crime and how they managed to break through it. Lucky for us, Tarina was willing to talk. Tarina is 47 years old. She's serving a 28-year sentence at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility. She was born in Cambridge, England. <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> but she was raised in the hood. And uh, <laughs> since coming to prison, she has been involved in many programs. And some of those are the apartment program, the canine program. She's also a peer mentor through the HOPE program at Denver Women's. She has completed courses in self-help the Urban Ministry Institute Inside Out, Anger Management, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Social Justice with CU Boulder, Parenting, Seeking Safety, and Alternatives to Violence, among others. Something that you may be interested to know uh, or be surprised to know about T is she absolutely loves old Shirley Temple movies. T was kind enough to join us and tell her story. Please be aware that some of the themes that are talked about in this episode might be uncomfortable for some. It's good to have you here today. Welcome, T. Hi. Is it okay if I call you T? Yeah, so please that, do. You go by that, right? Yeah. yeah, that's what everybody calls me. I just want to name how insanely generous it is that you are willing to talk to us because, you know, we're going to be talking about some things that are not 
light and fluffy and clean. You know, we're going to be talking about some some choices that were made. And um, again, I just want to, I said this off the air before we started recording, and I want to say it again on the air, that our intention here is not to paint you as a bully or as an antagonist, because that goes against the whole point of this podcast, which is to shift the conversation on who is in prison. Uh, we have the ability to hold that you are a complex person, that every single person in this room is a complex person, um, and that you've shifted and changed and that you have, that you're, you know, not perfect, just like all of us sitting at, sitting around this table. And so I just want to name that we are not here in any way to make you um, be the bad guy. So I just want to say that before we begin. Thank you. It's hard to uh, face your demons and I call it like I see it. I know what I was, but I know who I am now. So just to give um, our listeners a little context before we get into some questions, you're coming in after we've done an interview with um, Sarah Berry, who's the associate producer for Within. Uh, we recently interviewed her on the idea of um, a hierarchy of crime slash sort of the morality of crime, the spectrum of, of crime, uh, the convict code. It's hard to even put words to it because I think it's sort of an unsaid thing in prison and in society. And um, we talked a lot about her experiences coming into the facility and how um, the media had portrayed her and how that followed her inside. And then you came up. Imagine that. Can you illustrate that to me, this hierarchy, this convict code, this? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that women and men's facilities, they're run so differently. Like, Well, how does the it way look the, the, in, the, yeah. in, a, in a woman's facility? Okay, so in a woman's facility, in my opinion, uh, there is a hierarchy. There's um, a level of, uh, I don't want to say convictness because that's not right, but as a certain crimes will put you in a pecking order. And when I came in, it was if you had a child crime and you were an SO with a child crime, you were at the bottom of that pecking order. And then anything that had to do with a child was just barely a little bit over that. And you would go up and up depending on your crime. And the more public your crime, the more um, put out there that your crime was, the more that people knew about it for the females, I think it seemed like the higher you were on the pecking order. And for instance, murderers were at the top because a female murderer always made the news. When you say at the top, um, I, I already have so many questions. It's okay. like the food chain. Yeah, yeah. So at the top, like, so the, the quote, um, the, um, I'm struggling because I, I almost want to use like a positive word and I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to say the best or the highest, but yeah, maybe the, the top, yeah. the top is uh, a murderer of, but not of a, a child. Right. If you killed a child, you were still, you were at the bottom again. That's the child crimes. So can you walk us through A, why that philosophy and B, where do you think it came from? I think it came from the way that the majority of women are. We're technically, you know, we're supposed to be at home barefoot and pregnant taking care of the kids. That's a society thought process. And even when I was young um, and doing the most, women weren't supposed to be on the block selling drugs. They weren't supposed to be, um, they're not the ballers. They weren't the people that were out there doing the hustling and committing the crimes. The women were 
supporting the men that were doing those crimes, riding in the car, carrying the drugs, while the men were the the ballers, the ones that controlled the the situation at hand. So when it translates into behind the gate, it's if you are a female and you commit a crime like that, you're looked at like, whoa, she's she must be off the chain. There must be something wrong with her. Either she's really crazy or she goes hard in the paint. You must be kind of out there to commit a crime like murder. Unless, of course, it was a spouse. And then, well, then she just really went through it. And we're just going to kind of leave her alone because she's been so messed up in the head that she would do something like that. That's kind of the assumption. And then it goes down and down and down to the point where it's there's the murderers and then drug dealers and then thieves and robbers and bank robbers and depending on how the crimes go you know the the sex offenders are just at the bottom anybody that has a sex offender with a kid and that's the way women think of it I think because how can you do that to a child you are a woman you make children you don't hurt them and that's also, that's where my thought process was at when I came in. So is this talked about? Like, do you guys sit and talk about this? Is it an unspoken rule? <clears throat> How is that communicated? It's, you just, if you don't know, you know shortly after you get there, by the way, um, you're treated. Okay, so you walk through the door and everybody kind of already knows what you did. Because of the news. Because of the news. And what if you're not on the news? Well, if you're not on the news, people will ask and they pay attention to you. They pay attention to how you walk, how you present yourself. Um, and then they wait to see what classes you go to. Mm. You go to the SO class. Well, that's your ass. Oh, that's OK. You can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You if, if you, if you go to the the sex offender classes, then everybody already knows. If you're carrying that particular color folder that they give out in that class, like it's common knowledge. And the mindset that women are in with their emotional vulnerabilities when they get to prison is so low, no matter where you're at on that hierarchy, that the way you get treated the first couple weeks defines how you behave. So tell us, with Sarah, (laughs) Sarah is not a sex offender. She walked in with a child crime. Yeah? Can we call it that? Yes, absolutely. And um, tell us about what happened from your perspective. Well, my mindset when I got to prison was really kind of screwed up. Um, I came into prison killing someone for threatening to kill me and my son. And the way that I was raised was you always protect the kids. That's just something that I had gone through in my upbringing. Um, Sarah's story was already on the news. And I had heard things that were wrong. And when I, when I went to prison, I was originally uh, sent down to Canyon Women's Facility. And that was, at the time in the state, the sex offender facility. Now, I just get sentenced to 28 years 
for murder, for protecting my son, and you want to put me in a prison with nothing but sex offenders? I felt that that was a setup right from the beginning. I was like, for real? This is how you're doing me? And the first conversation I had with my case manager was, by the way, we don't want you to uh, get in any trouble while you're here. So keep the pictures of your son put away. Don't let anyone see them. There's only 270 women here, and 200 of them are sex offenders. So because we know uh, your history and your background, we suggest that you uh, protect the pictures of your son so that you don't have any altercations. And then I'm watching Sarah on the news, hearing how horribly the news will portray someone. And the way that the media let things out, and then the way that you hear things in the prison. I heard things like she had burned this little boy with uh, cigarettes all around his groin. She had starved him to death. She had um, just, she was beating him, and she was hurting him for years so that she could be a, and this, I, I know now, but so she could be a foster mom and just get the money. That's the things that I had heard about her. And they showed a picture of that little boy, and he looked just like my son. So for me, it was on site. She was going to know that we were not going to get along. Do not talk to me. And to be clear, none of those things are true, correct? Correct. Right, okay. But that's the way that it goes in the facility. It's like the telephone game. Right. And why is that? Why? Why? Why do you think that that's the way it is? That um, people, you know, spread those sort of kind of rumors and say those kind of things? Misery loves company. And that facility, if... In prison, if you can take the heat off of you by talking bad about somebody else, that's what happens. And she was in the news. So she was worse than all 200 other sex offenders that I was living there with. So, of course, everyone was talking bad about her. And let's make her the big bad wolf. Let's, uh, let's take out all of our anger and our issues and our emotional baggage on somebody else. And I didn't even have a whole lot of friends at the time. It was just me by myself and my own issues that I was struggling with. And that you were projecting onto her. Yeah. How long had you been in prison at that time? Um... Uh, just about a year. And when I came into prison, I was so stuck with my PTSD from the day of my crime without receiving any help. I was stuck in the, the fight or flight for probably a good seven years, eight years before I finally got some help in DOC because it's just not offered like that. And how old were you when you came in? I, it was uh, right at my 35th birthday, but I had suffered from PTSD since sixth grade. Mm. That was the first time I was held at gunpoint. That's where it comes from that I need to protect kids because no one was there to protect. Well, my mother protected me as much as she could, but I became the protector that day. And from then on. So you had this lived experience that told you, I protect children. I am the protector of children. I mean, you literally came to prison over protecting your son. Yep. You, that is your role. 
And then you see all of this information on the news about Sarah. And she walks in the door. And you were not kind. Nope. I spit at her the first time I saw her. It was ugly. It was ugly. Sarah was treated very ugly. And I don't mind facing that. I don't, that's why I'm here, is to tell people how others are treated in prison. I took the food off her tray and told her, no, you're going to starve too. You don't deserve to eat. I walked up past her, and I was so emotionally abusive to her that the only way that I know that we're able to be in the same room now is because of God's love. So I was so hateful towards her. Can you talk about what that did for you? So like in the, and how long did that go on? Um, it was the whole time we were both at Canyon. I mean, I had, I worked at the kitchen when she first got there and I made sure she never got a full tray. She was lucky to get the, the, the sauce off the vegetables, just the water from the vegetables. She was lucky for that if I was working and some of the other girls. Um, there was a time I was sitting at the table with her because we had to sit down and order. And my friends wanted, or my friends were done eating, and I didn't want what was there because the anger that I felt toward her inside was so strong that I couldn't even eat when she was sitting across the table from me. And the looks that I gave her, the things I was saying to her at the table were horrific. And when I asked my friends, I was like, do you guys want this? And they said, no. I said, well, you ain't fucking getting it and hit the food off my tray. I wasn't even going to let her look at it. I was a horrible individual to her. And I made sure that she knew she was not going to be happy if I was around. There wasn't going to be a happy, positive life for her if I was there. I wasn't going to allow it. And that, at the time, made me feel good. Because I'm sitting in prison for protecting mine. Had the little boy, had I known her then, she probably wouldn't be here. You know, had I known her before we were both in prison, I would have been helping her protect that kid. I just wanted to say, do you feel like had had you not had friends supporting you in this, had you had, had somebody say, hey, T, stop, do you think that you would have continued as much? Nope, I would have said, fuck you. So they were, you would have, you wouldn't have continued. Oh, like, no, being I mean would have continued. Sarah, you would have? Yeah, I would so have the, continued. like the other influence around you did not help? Nope. You were on a mission. Yeah. And, but at the same point, she wasn't the only one. She wasn't the only one that I was mean to. If I was mean to you, then it still justified what I did. Mm. Mm. If I was mean to you, then I was making sure you were suffering in prison. Sarah, do you want to say anything? Who? Um, I want to know what changed because that's a huge part of this whole thing is that that's not where things are right now. You and I have actually become very good friends in all of this. 
And um, somewhere along the way, things changed for you to have gone from that person to one of my closest friends. So what is it that brought you to that place? So in Canyon City, well, in county jail before I was sentenced, I was told about the apartment program. And the apartment program was where um, a female's child could come at the time and stay the night with you on the weekends, every other weekend. And all I was about was my kid. Like, I still have the feeling that I will do every day of my 28 years if I have to because my son is amazing and he is alive and I'm okay with it I'm okay with doing my time um but when I heard about the apartment program that's where my hope came in and that's part of the reason that I didn't get physical with Sarah that's the only reason my son has saved so many people (laughs) And he doesn't even know it. So I kept my hands to myself. And because I was told, you'll never get out of Canyon Women's. You're never going to make it to Denver to be on that program. Quit trying. And I said, yes, I will. God's bigger than you. He may not like me, but he loves my son. Because mm-hmm. I had the belief that God hated me. And I believed that all my life. Um, So having this belief system, I thought, okay, if I keep my hands myself, keep my nose clean, keep my head down, um, I can get to Denver eventually. And Canyon closed. When Canyon closed, I had the choice between going to Brush because I was on the dog program or coming to Denver. And I begged my boss to bring me to Denver so I could do the apartments. And I was blessed because she, I guess, liked that I was real good with the dogs or something. The dogs gave me something to love and gave me some hope, some more hope. So it was easy for me to stay focused and behave so I could stay here. I got to Denver Women's in March of '09, and this is how long after you'd been, how you'd gone into, how long had you been in Canyon Canyon first? Canyon. I was there for like uh, a year and a half, almost two years. Okay, so you had done two years of your sentence, right? And then you got moved to DW Denver right. Women's. Okay, yeah. And when I um, got moved here, that was in March. I had my first overnight with my son in July. And it went that fast because I had been fighting. I'd gotten myself on the list and everything from Canyon. I was still treating people in a very mean way. When I got here, before anybody could see a picture of my son, I'd be like, are you an SO? Because uh, if you are, and I find out later that I showed you my kid's picture, we're going to have a problem. Um, I still have those issues today. And with, I, with SOs? With yes. sex offenders? yes. You still feel very angry I'm, at them? Um, no, not angry, but I'm not Jesus. I'm judgmental. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that. Mm-hmm. That's a struggle for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was able to start seeing my son, I said, okay, I don't know anything about the law. 
I have to figure this out. I got to be able to get out of prison. I have to start fighting for myself because all I knew about the law and police and stuff before I came in here was you see the lights, you run, you go the other way. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't understand what F2s and F3s and this and that, what all that stuff was. So I started studying my case. And when I started studying my case, I realized that the jury had found me guilty of an F3, but the judge had sentenced me and listed me as an F2 which was a major difference. So then I needed to delve in more into my own situation. Delving more into it, I got the transcripts from my sentencing. When I got that, there were letters in there from my victim's family. And the names that they were calling me, some of them, were some of the names that I had called Sarah, that I had called other people. You're just, you're a piece of shit. You're a murderer. I hope you die in prison. And part of that is because they didn't know the situation. They live out of state. They don't know me. They never met my son. And I got that verbal abuse from my victim's family. The last letter that I read was from my victim's mom. And she said that she would pray for me. That she would pray that I would get a relationship with God. So that's where I started, getting a relationship with God. And realized that he does love me, that he doesn't hate me. That's when I started going to church and started delving into the Bible more, finding out some deep-seated issues that I have with myself, working really hard on not judging others, um, realizing that people's opinions of you from what little they know about you can change the whole world's opinion about you. And because of that, I started working on my own self. That's why I started taking all the classes I was taking. I was like, something's got to give. I've, I stopped using my mouth as a, as a weapon in a negative way and using it as a weapon for good. So then what helped you change is reading those letters. Yeah, my victims feel my victims family changed my entire life. Someone held you at gunpoint when you were young and you decided you were the protector of the children, right? Yeah. And then you came to prison because you were protecting your son. And in the process, someone died who was the son of someone. Right. I took away somebody's baby. 
even though he was grown. He was still someone's baby. Right. We we talked about it a lot about assumptions in uh in life and I think uh T has really described that as far as like she assumed. And uh, I think that's what we do is we walk through life because it's easier for our brains to compartmentalize things. So we assume things and then we cast judgment because it's much easier than taking the time out to going and actually talking to them because heaven forbid we find out we like them. And then, then we have to change our ethics. Then we have to maybe change our values that we thought we lived before. And so that's, um, I commend you for you, uh, taking that honest look at yourself and, uh, I'm not perfect. I still deal with the same judgments and um but I I've I've come to a place too to where you get to the point of how can I receive if I don't give? Yeah. And I I uh I want to know like how do you feel, Sarah? Yeah. Do you do you feel I mean, I know you, so it's not fair, but like, uh, do, do you feel forgiveness in your heart? Do you feel th- gratitude that she's come to this place? Even if it, even if you guys didn't have a friendship. When I wonder, even before you answer that question, I wonder if you, can you recall like the first time you had a real conversation with Sarah? Like when you, yeah, yeah can you recall that journey and th- those moments, um, e- either or both of you? Well, the first time I saw her, I saw her across the yard and I was on the dog team and I was like, is that, that's that. And I immediately in my head went to, that's that bitch. And I checked myself. Wait, so just so context for people. So you had been at one prison facility that's not where we are now. You had both been there and then you left. Well, no. And came. Right. Her and I were both at one. Yeah. She together. went to yeah. one facility and I went to another. So you were split up. Right. For how long? Let's see, five years, 2009 to 2014. Okay, I so was you, in La Vista. And then you came here? Correct, the end of 2014. And that's when you saw each other again? Correct. Okay. Um, I had changed so much, I had grown so much that that initial thought of there's that, I, it was hard for me, but I checked it. I pulled it in. I was like, you're not doing that. You haven't thought that in a long time. You need to fix that. And I just had to make sure it was her because she didn't even look the same. Like when the when I saw her when we were at the same facility before, the the thoughts in my head made her seem like this evil thing, this thing that you just wanted to just smash it like a spider is how I felt. Um, and when I saw her walking all those years later, she had a smile on her face. She wasn't downtrodden anymore. She wasn't beat up anymore. And her hair was light and she was just kind of happy. And I thought to myself, there, there she is. You have to get up some strength to you. You're going to have to get it together. You're going to, you know, you got to go tell her you're sorry. You know, you had to suck it up. And I couldn't at first. And I'd seen her for a while before we lived in the same housing unit. I'd seen her and I'd watched her and I was like, just get it together. That was the one person that over the years 
like she doesn't, <laughs> this is something I've never told her. I held it over myself. I felt so guilty and so horrible. I beat myself up for years for the way that I treated her. And she never even knew. <laughs> so when I saw her, we were in the same unit. I asked her one day, I was like, hey, do you mind if we talk? I need to talk to you. And she was like, uh, uh, oh, okay. What was going through your head, Sarah? Um, it's interesting because that, uh, that whole time in my life, um, especially the beginning part of my prison time, so much happened in such a short period because Tarina wasn't the only one acting like that. She wasn't like just the standalone person. There were so many people from so many angles in three different facilities in less than six months that I went through, you know, and that was just the initial shock to everyone. So she was one of many. And, um, I already hadn't really fully comprehended everything in my life at that point, and I was so broken that I almost went into shutdown mode. Um, and I've noticed as I've gone through time, like there's certain people that like I'll, I can't place. Like there's a lot of stuff that she said that just today talking about things that she did that I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that happening. Oh yeah, I remember that happening, but I didn't have that connected with her because so much happened and but I would have people that I would have that feeling of um like we had really negative interactions and I can't tell you why and I don't know what it is and I had felt that with her but I couldn't place it so I just left it and that's something that I knew and that was part of the reason that I made it a point to find her and talk to her because she would walk in the room or she would be in a room and I would walk in and her eyes would immediately hit the ground. Or she would immediately walk out of the room. And it was avoidance all the way around. And I never want anybody to have to try and avoid me. For what? Who am I? You know, I never wanted her to feel afraid of me. There's no reason to. My perspective, because not only like we talked about when I was initially interviewed, like not only had I gone through enough abuse prior to coming to prison, but then all of the abuse that happened in the beginning time of prison. And I, I knew what that felt like. I had lived it for so much that from my perspective, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. I don't want, I don't want to hold that against someone else. So even though I had that negative energy with her, I wasn't going to be the one that was going to hold that against her. So I wasn't going to be the one of her saying, you know, hey, can we talk? But like, no, you know, forget you. I'm not talking to you. Like, I don't know what you did, but I know you did something kind of thing. I wasn't going to be that person because I knew what it felt like. And I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know what it was going to look like. And she's not the first one that that had happened to with me either. You know, I have I've had several situations of, you know, being a core group member of Seven Habits in La Vista, and some girl got put in my group, and she, for the first couple of weeks, just sat and stared at me like, oh, my God. And I, it was the same exact thing. I didn't remember things that she had done, too, and it was almost the same situation. So I had kind of been, to a degree, almost prepared for it, but not quite prepared for it. I summoned up the courage somehow. 
And I asked her, I was like, hey. I, so you I, humbled yourself? I had to. Why? Because I didn't want anybody so afraid of me that they couldn't look me in the eye. I don't want anybody so um, uncomfortable that they leave the room because I am no better than anybody else and I am no worse than anyone else. And I don't have the right to judge anyone else. I don't have the right to convict Sarah or anyone else for their situations. And I hope... I have the hope that one day his, my victim's family can forgive me. I'll never have any forgiveness if I'm not humbling myself to give that forgiveness. Mm. That's really if bad. I can't give it, how am I going to get it? And it's not a selfish, I need, I need, I need forgiveness, I need it. No, because it's forgiveness is a gift that's given and it's given freely and it's given without strings attached and it's given humbly from the person that's given it to you and Sarah's situation deserves forgiveness it deserves grace just as mine does just as anyone who uh, mistreats another person, anyone who even has the thoughts towards someone that is so negative and so horrible. Society, for example, thinks that a convict is a horrible person. We're not. We're people that have gone through things. We deserve that grace. We deserve that forgiveness. We deserve a second chance. I'm lucky enough to know that I will have it one day. I'll be in society. I'm going to be out there with y'all. <laughs> I'm going to be doing my life. I'm going to be doing wonderful things. And you're not even going to know if I'm standing next to you. Because it's not about that. I don't wear a sign on my forehead that says, Hi, I'm a murderer. You and, hope it's the actions that you do. Right. I, when I leave, it'll be, Oh, dang, she does real good work with them kids. Look at her working with the gang members. Look at what she's doing with her life. It's going to be amazing. And I can't wait. Is and that what you hope to do afterwards, is, is try to educate more people? Is that why you're here today? Yes. Yeah. I have, to, I have to get it out there. I have to let people know that we're not horrible individuals. We're people. We're humans. We deserve human kindness. One act of human kindness can change the entire world if all of us did one act of human kindness every single day with the way that we look at somebody the way that we treat someone it would change the world I think the biggest thing that stood out to me from our conversation that we had was that that the moment that I really started telling you what really did happen in my lifetime, there was a sense of brokenness that came over you, a sense of compassion 
and relatability that um, is very rare coming from someone that had not acted that way prior to. And it was interesting to watch from my perspective, seeing you have this moment of, like you said earlier, had I been there during that time in your life, it would have been different. But that's never something that you would have ever thought of or said or put yourself in the place of before having that conversation. And that is the perfect example of, you know, through this, through all of our episodes, it's always this conversation about humans. We are humans at, at the very base level. And without being able to see each other from that perspective, you overlook everything. And you overlook the ways that you're similar and the ways that you're different, no matter what position you're in. And I've had a lot of people that have come to me over the years and apologized. My life is not the same now as it was when I first came in, thankfully. Um, but you are one of very few who gave me that true understanding, not just an apology, which the apology in and of itself, I don't want to discount that because that's incredible as well. Um, got you. But that was very special to me. I got you. For years and years, I mean, well over a decade now that I've been in a position where I'm standing on a mountaintop and I'm screaming into the wind and nobody's listening and it just disappears. And that's been applicable in so many ways in my life. Uh And for the first time ever to have the ability to speak and know that there will be people listening to restore relationships to hope that at the very least that my experiences could change somebody else's life could save someone's life could save someone from going through this stuff could alter a direction of where society goes. That's huge. To be sitting across the table from someone, having a conversation about things that I didn't directly link with her. Until today. Until today. (laughs) And yet knowing that Grace and mercy and forgiveness covers all of it. Whether it's for you, it's for me, it's for anybody else sitting in this room, it's for society. You know, our listeners, like those, those three things are so powerful if you only choose to use them. Being afraid to use them keeps you bound in chains. You're still stuck in prison no matter where you're at. 
And uh, it's a lot to take in right now. It's a lot. But it's incredible at the same time. It's very humbling. I'm beating myself up again. I buried all these feelings. Um, and the way that I treated Sarah and others, I put it away years ago. And talking about it again has brought it all up. And I have some more apologies to go do things that I've remembered just in the last 24 hours talking about all of this. I'm like, oh, God, you still have a lot of work to do. But I got to put in my time. <laughs> I got to go. got to hit the bricks and go say some more I'm sorry's. It's hard to face your demons. But it's good to bury them. Do you feel good about what you've talked about today? Yeah. I think you should. <laughs> Thanks. Absolutely. It's got to help somebody somewhere. And if I don't help at least one person while I'm in here, then what was the time in here for anyway? We've talked about that how many times? I don't know. Too many times. I value my friendship with you, Sarah. As I do you. We have a resident poet who um, is on our team who writes poems as we're doing interviews. And we have one for you. Would you like to hear it? Oh, shit, son. Yeah. <laughs> You really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is called Misunderstood by William S. Graham. I was raised different. A beautiful heart transformed. Challenging everything life told me. Challenging the norm. A quiet storm. Hurt by life. Promising to see everything in true light. Wrong or right. Every night I would cry for my son. Searching for something to love saying, my life isn't over, my life isn't done, asking why, asking God, why do you hate me, judging others before I was judged. My heart became warmer. I started challenging my own grudge, looking in the mirror of life, asking, keeping everything that is good, saying, I am not perfect. I know this now, but I am misunderstood. You are amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Trina, for being with us. Next time on Within. Dr. Jeffrey Lynn, criminologist and professor at the University of Denver. You know, if that's the case, if the, you know, again, back to this idea of are prisoners different from us? Are inmates different from us? Are they separate from us? Or are they part of the community? And how should they be considered as part of the community? Well, I consider incarcerated people as part of the community because they are literally coming back to my community. We all have a responsibility to think about what prison does to people. We wanted to include more voices from incarcerated folks across the state of Colorado. So we started a newsletter. It's called Reverberations from Within. If you're interested in reading it or in sending pieces of writing into it, visit our website at thisiswithin.com. If you're incarcerated in the state of Colorado and you want to submit material to our newsletter, please speak to your programs manager in your facility. Within is a collaborative production between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. 
Our hosts are Denise Presson, resident of Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Andrew Draper, resident of Sterling Correctional Facility, and executive producer and DUPI founder and director, Ashley Hamilton. Within is produced by Caroline Sheehan. Associate producers are Michael J. Clifton and Sarah Berry, both of whom are incarcerated. Mr. William S. Graham is our resident poet as well as a resident of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Media production and creative support by Angel Lopez and Chuck Martinez, both of whom are residents of Sterling Correctional Facility. Our newspaper liaison is Terry Mosley Jr., who is also a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Sound engineering and editing by Jonathan Howard. Full episode details, resources, and additional content, including how to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, Reverberations from Within, is located on our website at thisiswithin.com. Hey, let's go! Yeah.